I get really annoyed when people introduce me to events as an activist because I know so many great activists that are doing the hard fucking work that I'm like, actually, no. Like, they, I, you know, no. The people that are activists to me are the people that are doing this and that and that. And I think... Um, it's so interesting what happens to culture when they see marginalized people express their opinion. Suddenly, we have to heavily politicize them. It gets better cause it has to get better. We're all made of human. Hi, everyone. You are listening to the Made of Human podcast with Sophie Hagen. That's me. I'm your host. I'm a Danish stand-up comedian. That's why I sound like this. The background noise you can hear is uh, a busy London road, a trafficked London road, because I'm not closing the window for this, because then I would die. I would dehydrate immediately and die, because it's so hot. I can't even exist in my own skin. So you will be hearing buses and uh, police cars and uh, people screaming. Because, hey, London, I'm not paying... uh, my life savings in rent every month to have peace and quiet am i i'm in the middle of things it's um supposedly the best thing to be no i'm very happy i'm just very warm as well you are about to listen to the travis alabanza episode travis alabanza it's episode 101 which is kind of weird 101 episodes i didn't i don't know if i thought we'd make it this far i just wanted to create a fun a fun little podcast that I enjoyed where I would get to speak to really cool people and that has most definitely happened most definitely 101 episodes and now Travis Alabanza Travis Alabanza is so cool I wanted to cry all the way through recording this episode the audience it's a live episode from the Soho Theatre the audience was amazing I've I mean there must have been what 15 20 applause breaks and Ah, yeah, I'm really touched. I'm really moved. Um, I'm so happy that Travis wanted to do this. Uh, I, I'll just let you listen to the episode. I quickly just want to say, if you didn't know, you can buy. I just released my uh, my latest uh, stand-up comedy show on video. Uh, you can either download or stream it from my website, sophiehagen.com forward slash shop. It's five pounds. You just um, type it in. You can either download or stream it. It's very simple. It's a show about my psychopathic grandfather. It's a show about a funeral, and it's a show about uh, hardcore kick-ass women. You can also buy my latest show, my last show, my uh, show Shimmer Shatter, which is about being an introvert and feeling like a bit of a weirdo. Uh, they're both five pounds, and it would mean the world to me if you wanted to buy them and watch them and tell me what you think. Yeah. Now I'm just going to let you listen to um, the absolutely extraordinary Travis Alabanza. Give it up for the amazing Travis Alabanza! Oh, we can't see them. I can see enough. See, I can see like a bit of them. We can see all ten of them. The people I can see look gorgeous. It's because there's, <laughs> there's only ten in. I just didn't want you to know. <laughs> How are you feeling? You know what? Um, it's Pride Weekend, so it's very busy, but it's so nice to be able to sit down and just relax. Well, don't relax too much. Oh, no. Because <laughs> here's your past. No. <laughs> For people who might not uh, be aware of who you are, do you want to give a quick kind of introduction? 
Um, yeah, uh, my name is Travis Alabanza, and I guess depending on where you've seen me, I'm either a really annoying person on the internet or a really annoying person on stage. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess for the last three, four years, I've been making art and work and writing around being gender non-conforming, being trans, being black, and taking lots of really good selfies as well. <laughs> you do have the most amazing Instagram Yeah. It's so colorful. Thank you. Yeah, I feel like I'm in monochrome today, but normally there is a lot of color. Um, I love it. I feel like it's an extension of what I'm doing, yeah. Have you, I've heard you talk about a time when you were less fashionably aware? Yeah, the dark ages. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I refer to those times as the dark ages. Um, yeah, I guess for me, fashion was always something I was interested in. And I used to be interested in it from a distance because I knew I wanted to play with fashion. I knew I wanted to take risks, but I didn't know if I could do it safely. And I think for me now, it's just making up for lost time. I'm like all these times I was told that I had to wear trousers and shirts to schools. All these times I was told I had to look like a man. I'm now like, fucking hell, that was... So Am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Oh, absolutely. Oh, fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> um, fucking hell, that was so boring. There's so many more exciting things to be than a man. Um, <laughs> so I'm just catching up for lost time <laughs> I'd literally rather be a potato than a man I think <laughs> don't discredit the potatoes like that <laughs> so have you always had like uh, like have you always known that you wanted to not not dress like that not conform I yeah guess? I think um, when I was younger I, I, I think this story sounds differently the more I tell it I used to lie I think but not consciously I used to subconsciously lie and be like you know when I was younger I used to do this and I used to wear heels and want to be this and actually I think that's a lie when I was younger I did wear heels I did paint my nails I, I was like a queen and then something happened when I was eight or nine and suddenly I became punished for the things that I was celebrated for before um, and I think I kind of erase that part of myself out. But I, I, I it's hard to look back. Um, therapy's helping. But um, it's hard to look back because I, I, I think that I always knew that I felt uncomfortable with the way the world was seeing me. And then fashion became a tool to tell people that I, I, I don't want you to see me how you're, you're seeing me right now. That's quite interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of... I mean, I'm not saying that doesn't also happen, but... The natural instinct, I think, for most children and young people and even fucking adults is to internalize it. So instead of thinking that there's something wrong with the rest of society, you think, oh, I must be... Yeah, I, I, never, I missed the, the something's wrong with me, though. And I think that, like, uh, I'm glad I missed it, but I think that current trans narrative wants us to say, like, I knew I was always like this, I was born this way, I was born in the wrong body, and da-da-da-da. And I kind of think that I just didn't really understand gender. That was my problem, is that I, did, I didn't... I, I I felt like I was catching up with everyone else's perception of me. I remember the, the the a time very clearly where I was 10 years old and we were split up into boys and girls in a sports team. And, and I just was so confused when they pointed me over to the boy section. And then I was like, oh, shit. That's how people are, oh, fuck. How am I going to sort this one out? <laughs> and I, I think it was about catching up. And, and, and yeah, I kind of was oblivious. Maybe because I had a mum that was um, so gender wasn't really enforced in our household. It wasn't really something that was prominent. Um, I think my mum probably processed that I was a queen from like to the age of five. So then when I could vocalize that I was a queen, she was like, I've already done all that work. So let me just let this person be who they are. 
And then you get out into the outside world and they start telling you how to be. Have I ever, I was about to say, have I ever told you? I haven't. This is the first time we talk. <laughs> but I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, but that was a real eye-opening moment was when my, my aunt, who I, I spent a lot of time growing up with, um, she's old now. She's like 60-something, maybe even 70-something. And uh, <laughs> that's old. I don't know what the laugh was about. <laughs> they don't think I can call that old. That's old. That's not, oh, oh I'm sorry. Are you saying that old is a bad thing? Oh. <laughs> oh, I had higher hopes for you. Anyway. <laughs> uh, in the 70s, I think. Anyways, um, so she was asking me about, uh, like, like she knows nothing. So she was asking me, what is this gender thing? What is, I've heard that there's no longer just man and woman. And mm. What does that mean? Mm. So I was trying to explain in like the most simple way like non-binary or non-gender conforming and I was just trying to say like some people don't feel like either or some people just feel like they're a person or them and the word woman feels wrong the word she feels wrong mm-hmm. the word. and she went huh <laughs> that's me relatable <laughs> yeah, I know and there was just this moment of Huh. Mm. Anyways, and then you know, yeah. and it feels now it feels it still feels weird for me to say she, but I asked later, so, mm. oh, like I was kind of excited. I was like, "Do you want me to? Like, this is amazing. Like, you found this thing and mm. you didn't know that was the, the word for this." And she was like, "Oh no, 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 that's fine." But it was that, and I think that's so incredible that that's just always been secret to I, her. That's so poignant as well. I feel like it's so. I feel like that's that example is what I try and take with me when I'm talking, is that I think there's so many people that have gone throughout life saying I'm a man or saying I'm a woman for easy sake. And then when you give them the option, they realize that they are so much more than the thing they were told that they had to be, right? Yeah, and you're they. Well, I'm Travis. You're Travis. Yeah, well, I'm, I, I feel like um, I'm Travis, and I feel like um, they is the thing that I use because language has failed me. Yeah. Right, So I, I feel like when people focus upon my pronouns, what they're missing is that um, I'm using a language that is already gendered in such a way that means that this is the best fit. So for me, they is, I'm, I'm not a they, I, I'm Travis, um, and I'm not a man, and I'm not a woman. And they is the pronoun that makes me feel the less sick. Right, like you know, uh, but I also love she. Right, like so when people are like, "Oh, I'm a they," I'm like, "Yeah, but you can she me too." Like I think for me, the pronoun has became such the focal point that actually for me, we're getting lost in what it actually means to talk about gender because we're fixated so much on the pronoun that we're not actually talking about what that pronoun might represent for that person. Yeah. So did it have any meaning for you when you started asking people to stop gendering you and turn to pronouns? (laughs) Yeah, it was intense because I think for me, um, I grew up thinking I must be a trans woman. For a really long time, I was like, I'm not a man, so the only other option for that must mean that I'm a woman. And I remember coming across uh, the poetry collective Dark Matter at the time, and they were the first time I ever saw two people explain what being neither man or woman meant. And I was like, hold on a minute. There's this option that's like, neither? What is this? And I, and I saw the pronoun they and if I'm honest actually what's what's interesting is the first time I met someone that used they or them pronouns I found it really hard um and we never talk about this I misgendered them a lot not on purpose but it doesn't really matter I misgendered them a lot I found it hard to readjust my language frame and I went away from the time I spent with them not understanding them and then two years later I was I emailed them like I'm so sorry for what I'd done I think actually that resistance was coming from me 
feeling like I was part of you as well. And um, yeah, I feel like the they pronoun for me is not as big of a deal as everyone makes it. It's just like, actually, this is the thing that makes me feel most at ease, right? It's, it doesn't really describe who I am. It's just, actually, it's more about the absence. It's the absence or he or she that makes me feel comfortable rather than the presence of they. I, I've seen you saying somewhere that you think uh, that all people are trans. Girl, you've done your research. <laughs> Way to just drop me in. I can't even see what the faces at the back are saying. But the person there was like, what? I'm not trying. Um, yeah, so I guess what I, I... It's really weird having it all dark here. I'm also um, visually impaired as well, so I actually like can't even see past this person here. Um, but um, yeah, for me, what I mean by everyone's trans, I, I think, you know, I have said that. Um, I probably had a couple of drinks. But... Um, <laughs> But I think what I mean by that is that I think in a world that allowed gender to be expressed safely and freely, people would realize they are not as cis as they think they are. And what I mean by that is that I, I am tired of a trans conversation that places transes over here and cis is over here as if cisgender people don't have lots to learn from trans people. As if actually that that in embracing transness, we realize that there's lots of cisgender people. And I say that in inverted commas really truly because I think that a lot of people aren't as comfortable in their gender as they would allow to be. And in allowing and listening to trans people, we realize that actually, oh, all these things I'm doing and performing, maybe I'm doing this because I was told that I had to. So I think when I say, I, I, I genuinely believe that trans would be a majority in a safe world because I think that it's the most ridiculous idea that we gather all these millions and billions of people and decide that they would neatly fit into two categories of male and female. That's the wildest joke. I can't believe... I, I, I mean, I, I just don't get that. Like, I, I don't understand any other time in history where we would get this many people and say it would fit into two boxes. I think what we're doing now is pretending really well that it's working for us. And what my work is saying is, actually, this isn't working for us. Join the party. <laughs> <laughs> Just, I'm just really enjoying you talking. <laughs> I'm having fun. It's, it's so, so fun. Good. It's lovely. Uh, and I, uh, okay, so I want to talk to you about... So something happened, was it earlier this week in Spain? Something... Antwerp. Oh. Yeah. Where is Antwerp? Where was I in Antwerp? Close to Spain? Yeah. Wait, where, what country is Antwerp in? Because I... Belgium. I was in Belgium. Belgium. That's what I was just about are to Are you on about the club? I was, yes, yes. Yes. Antwerp. I was in Antwerp performing. I don't know why I thought it was Spain. Yeah. I was in Mountain on ho- no Spain's not Mountain either, is it? <laughs> I don't know why you put Spain. Listen, that's not geography's not my strength. <laughs> um, do you want to talk about what uh, what happened? Yeah. Um, so I was in Antwerp performing on a European, a short European tour, uh, and I was performing at the Transgender Europe conference. And after my performance, I met with lots of trans people who wanted to go out clubbing. Uh, for a lot of these trans people, this was the first time they'd ever been with other trans people. And they were so excited to see a space where trans people were like going out, we were flirting, we were chatting with each other, we were being guess what, human, um, and we decided to go out clubbing, and uh, we went to a bar, and they wouldn't let us in because we were trans, and they said it simply as that, they said no trans people allowed, uh, so I, I filmed them whilst asking them why they aren't letting us in, and they said, I'm sorry, this is an all-gay male bar, uh, no trans people allowed. I think what I, well, you you've, you put it online as well, yeah, you I talked put, about it yeah, online, yeah. I think what I want to it wasn't just to, for you to tell a horrible story. It's because I think... So that happened, and that blew up a tiny bit on, on social media. 
And that happened to you earlier as well with uh, in Topshop when you were sent to the mill um, yeah. dressing room, whatever it's mm-hmm. called. And what I'm thinking is, so you're also a really creative person. And I feel when I'm under attack, because that's always what's going to happen when you put anything online, people are going to attack you, as well as the people who are going to support you. That really stifles my creativity. How do you... Mm. What's my, my question, I guess, is... Because this will happen to you a lot. And then you justifiably get angry, and then you put it... You want to change it, and then you do your kind of activism bit. Does that stifle your creativity? Yes. yes. Um, wow, so I knew that podcast was going to get real. <laughs> I've listened to a few episodes, but normally when I'm interviewed, no one actually gives a shit. So it's very interesting to be like, um, and I promised myself honesty tonight as well. Yeah. Um, Yes, I think um, it's been really hard managing the press and the, the attention I've got from activism because I've always been an artist and the way that people have even ever gotten to know who I am, the small people that know who I am, is from predominantly my art. And then something's happened last year, predominantly since Topshop, where suddenly I'm, I'm no longer introduced as an artist, but a media influencer. <laughs> and it, it's hard because I feel like it makes me fall into an abusive relationship with the internet, where, where I've always talked about my experiences online. For me, that was a way of saying to other people, this is happening. And I think with Topshop, what I remembered is that I tweeted about Topshop the same I would tweet about five years ago if I had a complaint about a company. I got chucked out of your changing room. What are you going to do about it? But I forgot that this time I have 10,000 people watching. And I think it does stifle my creativity in a way that sometimes I have to manage the fact that I'm spending so much time online facing these things and not enough time remembering that I'm an artist first um but luckily I have friends around me that said hey girl get your shit together you've got a show to make you've got some work to make and put that into it so I'm trying to learn how to reclaim my relationship with the internet but I think it's a real shame because I think I've you know I was a MySpace I was a MySpace girl you know I'm like I'm definitely in that era. I'm young, you know. I was like on MySpace, popping it out. I've always loved the internet as a space to like be free and to kind of use it for not affording therapy. And <laughs> and now, what I find hard is that when I post something, I wake up the next day and hundreds of people have a response to it. And I think people project then what I'm feeling onto my tweet or onto my Instagram post. So yeah, it's hard. I think it stifles. I'm still creative and I'm still creating every day. What I think it does is it changes uh, what happens to an audience when they come into my room. So before when I was doing shows two or three years ago where I didn't have an online following, people would come in with a blank slate and they would see what I presented on stage. But now people come in thinking, I've heard about this person, I know about this person, I've seen that they're angry online. So I feel like the first 10 minutes is about like kind of flipping their perceptions of how I am. And I feel like that's how I'm, when I meet everyone now, when they know me from online, is that the first 10 minutes is about telling them that I'm not going to call them out after the show. <laughs> you know, it's telling them I'm actually not this, like, angry Twitter person. Um, well, I am, but I'm so much more in front of that. Yeah, and I, because I, I can relate a tiny bit to that feeling, because al- I also quickly became furious online person. <laughs> and I did an interview recently where they then, because I, I said the same thing, I said, 
more or less this like yeah but I'm a comedian I really really just want to be a comedian actually like but then things happen yeah. and then I get angry and then someone has to yeah. I need to say these things yeah. out loud mm-hmm. and then I'm angry activist and then the interviewer said um, but aren't you just happy that you're creating a debate and I got so yeah. angry because yeah. I was like I, I did actually shout I think it's going to be edited out because <laughs> I was just like no, I don't want a debate no no I do not want I want just this to change because we've had the debate for 30, 40 years mm-hmm. this is about uh, fat, fat phobia so we've had this debate for fucking forever I'm tired of debating I don't need to hear the other side of the argument like, that's been made for the same argument for 40 years so now I just want things to change actually I got really angry well, I said that in a less nice way <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But um, do, you, do you just wish that you just could just create and you didn't have to because you, do you, or do you feel that you do have to speak out when stuff like that happens? Um, no. I think what makes me uh, feel still authentic in myself is that if I'm honest, when I'm producing something and when I'm saying something, the person I'm saying it for, and this sounds selfish, is myself. And I say that because it means that I know if I'm saying it for myself and it's authentic for myself, then it might do good for other people. As soon as I feel that I have to speak out for my community, have to speak out for this representative group, then things start to feel fake. I think for me, I'm always like, this has affected me, so I'm just going to say what comes from me. And then that might be why people connect to my work, because it feels real. I think there was a couple of weeks when I was like, maybe I have to speak about this, maybe I have to speak about that. That's not me. You know, I I didn't sign up to be a spokesperson for the community. I don't think anyone can be a spokesperson for a community. I can only talk about what I experience, and then if other people relate to that, then that's great. But I'm I'm always speaking about, you know, this is what I'm feeling. And And it says, it sounds selfish, but actually it's about for me being authentic. And it's saying that I I never signed up to be an activist. And I think it's really... I I get really annoyed when people introduce me to events as an activist because I know so many great activists that are doing the hard fucking work that I'm like, actually, no. Like, you know, no. The people that are activists to me are the people that are doing this and that and that. And I think um, it's so interesting what happens to culture when they see marginalized people express their opinion. Suddenly, we have to heavily politicize them. Whereas white men, straight men, have been saying their opinions for decades and they'll be credited for their craft. But we suddenly say our opinions and it's like heavily politicized. And I'm just like, I'm bored of that. I'm over it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your relationship with anger? Wow. Um, <laughs> if my therapist is in the room tonight, <laughs> I need you to leave now. <laughs> um, um, I think my relationship to anger is one that's always been there. I think I've, I, I used to be a very angry kid. I used to um, pop off. That would maybe be the word that I would use. I grew up in a council estate in Bristol, and being queer and gender non-conforming on a council estate uh, means that you have to know how to be angry. Uh, you have to know how to, when someone calls you something, to be like, what the hell? That was my survival mechanism, especially uh, in secondary school. I went to a, a, a very working class secondary school where like, the only way I was going to survive was to know how to fight back. Um, and I think now my relationship to anger is that I don't shame it, and it's natural, but now I look for another emotion. I think, that the, I, I think that I don't shame other people when I see it, and I don't shame myself when it comes up, 
but I'm pushing myself to find another emotion that doesn't come as naturally to me as anger. Um, I read somewhere you said, I had to read it a few times because I wasn't sure I'd read it right, because you said that when you do gigs to a, a, an audience consisting uh, exclusively of people of color, you were less angry than when you performed to an all-white crowd. Yeah. And the reason I had to read it, because I've heard so many people of color say that the opposite, basically, mm. that they stifle their anger with white people so they don't mm. come across as the stereotypical blah, blah, blah. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah that's real. I think for me, um, when I see a room of white people paying to see my work, there's a really big bubbling of anger that comes up to me because I'm like, you're spending this money and time on me, but do you know about the trans black person that just got killed last week? Or do you know about the person that just got deported on this flight in Virgin Airways? So suddenly everything at the anger feels so natural. And I feel like for me, it's, it's easier to be angry. The way I was taught to survive was to combat my oppression with anger. So I feel like when I get a room full of queer people of color, I can allow myself to be vulnerable. And I feel like uh, when I said it in that interview, it was me being, um, who gets to deserve my vulnerability? And, and who gets to, um, who gets to be privileged? Not, not everyone should see my vulnerability. And I feel like when I'm in a room full of people of color, I can allow myself to be soft. Uh, I don't want to read the poem that's talking about white violence towards me. I want to talk about the poem that was about falling in love with another black person. I, I, I feel like they can hold that and who gets to deserve that. Whereas I feel like when I have the, my, my most audience is a majority white, I'm like, actually right now we haven't got to a place where you can listen to me talking about black love uh, because my people are still being killed. So if right now you're coming to my stage set for an hour, I'm going to be angry. Yeah. So that's, yeah. No, go on. Yes. <laughs> so where was, or where did you place, or how did you express your vulnerability when you were a child and the anger came easier? Wow, are we sure this isn't a therapy session? <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, can you repeat that? Yeah, so I think that's because I, I'm self-analyzing as well. I think my question about anger came because I think, for me personally, my anger is the most vulnerable because I've never learned how to use it. Then I thought, oh, that's interesting how that, you said that the opposite of yeah. anger was vulnerability. And I was like, ah, so what about when you're growing up, what about vulnerability? Where was that? Wow. Um, I think I wasn't allowed to be vulnerable. I think that um, I grew up poor. And I say poor, not working class, because it was poor. Um, no food. And I think that for me, there wasn't a chance to be vulnerable. I saw the situation that I was in and I knew I needed to get out. I knew that I didn't want to create a cycle of continuing to have no food at the end of the month. And I knew that I had something. I felt it. I could, I, I, when I got on stage for the first time, I was like, something's happening when I'm on stage. People are responding. I don't have time to be vulnerable. I need to be fierce. I need to be powerful. I need to be badass. So I, I don't think there was really a space for me to be vulnerable. I think it was mainly like, I'm going to work my ass off now to prove that I can get out of this place, get out of this. Da, 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 da. And obviously that changes now because I have no shit. I think for then I had a lot of shame around where I was from, whereas now it's just pride. I love going back to my council estate. I love seeing what it taught me. I love seeing all of that. But at that moment, I think vulnerability wasn't existent. 
it was anger and fierceness. Uh, so I think now what I'm doing is is relearning how to be vulnerable. Have this you, is deep. I'm, yeah, I'm so, I feel, oh, oh, I, it almost feels intrusive. I feel a bit I, like a, I'm a bit... I feel like I should pay you. Like, my yeah. therapist's rates is high. I'm like, whoa. I mean, I wouldn't say no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can become a patron of the podcast on patreon.com forward slash mo. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> I, my, in, my instinct is to ask you this. It's, have you just always been fighting? Do you ever stop fighting? Yes. Um, I wanted to answer no, I'm always fighting, but I actually think no, I, I, I stop fighting with my friends. I think for me, my friendships are the place where I'm allowed to be soft, I'm allowed to be vulnerable, and I'm fully myself. And I have spaces within my friendships where I'm allowed to be messy, I'm allowed to be not perfect, and I'm allowed to be broken. But yes, I think I've always been fighting. I think in order in order to survive as a trans black person that's poor in this world, it's a constant fight. Um, and I think no one ever talks about that side of oppression. I think we often talk about oppression in statistics. We often talk about it in figures. We often talk about it. But no one ever talks about what, what does it look like to have an emotional lineage of being oppressed. And I think that what that means is it's not a coincidence that we've started to archetype black people as strong because I think what's happened is that black people were forced to be strong because they were forced to fight. And so, yeah, I, I've, I've only known fires. My mum was a single black mother in the UK with no money. She was a fire. My family were, were black people migrating to the country. They've always been fighters. I've only ever known fighting. And that's not to say I'm not proud of the, the fighters, but I think then there's... The backlash of that is that who's allowed to be soft? Who's allowed a depth of emotion? And I feel like that's never talked about in oppression is that actually what oppression has done to black people, to black queer and trans people specifically, is it's made us 2D. And that actually who is allowed to have depth? So, uh, what's the question? I guess it's... So, do you feel like you connect with people who have not fought? Do you find that when you look around at the people you hang out with, the people you feel safe with, are they similar in terms of, do they have that brokenness or that um, fighting instinct? Or? Most of my friends share an, an experience of being marginalized, um, but it's not exclusive to that. Um, I think what bonds me in my friendships is a want to be honest. That's what I look for in the people around me, is like, can we be honest? Because I think this world teaches us to uh, hide and say we are fine when really all of us are lonely. And it teaches us to say that we're doing okay when really all of us are depressed. And so what I look for in my friendships is less what their identities are and more if they can be honest that they're not doing well. Uh, I, I, I don't trust people that say under this system that they are doing fine. <laughs> I, I just don't get it. So I think for me, my friendships are about... Um, Less about, I mean, yes, I live with three other black trans girls. And yes, that's because we share this idea of needing to fight. But also I have white straight friends. I have all these different types of friends. What bonds us is an honesty. I think um, capitalism tells us to be not honest. And so what I'm, I'm bored of that. Can you I, explain that? 
capitalism. Wow, I sound like such a wanker. No, it sounds. It sounds. So and I can't good. see anyone's expression. So like <laughs> most people are like, yeah, you're a fucking wanker. Um, I but, think that but, it looks like they all agree. And it's not a Q and A, so I like don't even know if they're engaged. But um, <laughs> um, I think. Capitalism tells us that we have to be consistently productive, that we have to consistently have worth, that we consistently have to produce. And I'm like, what would it look like to just say, I'm, I'm just here and I don't need to do anything and I, and I don't need to do anything to matter and I don't need to be productive to matter and I don't need to know what I do. You know that question like, that you ask on a date, what do you do? Fuck off, I'm just existing. I, I'm interesting. I'm interesting. Yeah. I'm interested in making friendships with people that are like, when you ask what they do, they say, what do you mean? Why can't you ask me what I enjoy? Why can't you ask me what I'm scared of? Why can't you ask me what, I, like, what I'm thinking about before I go to bed? And capitalism tells us that that's not what's important. And capitalism tells us to, to hide so many parts of ourselves to stay productive. And I'm interested in friendships that don't feel productive that say like, hey, I'm friends with you and there might not be any worth from this, but I'm just friends with you because I want to be next to you. I think they're engaged. I think they're engaged too. (laughs) Okay, I want to ask you a question uh, that I always ask on the podcast. Um, And I've told myself to stop explaining it first. Don't don't, don't explain it. I'm going to explain it. It's because... (laughs) I cannot say it because it's a it's a it's a humble brag. <laughs> okay. But, mm, it's it's because I asked this question to Westlife when I was thirteen. <laughs> and and it was I, it took me so long to think of it, and then I asked them, and then they answered disappointingly. Oh shit! Pressure. They're, yeah, but don't worry, <laughs> you'll be fine. It's hard to be worse than that. Um, <laughs> And the question was based around when I, was meet, when I met Westlife. You know what it's like. Uh, <laughs> they had done, uh, they'd done press the entire day, right? So I knew that they were going to be sick and tired of the same questions they were being asked all the, single, all the time. And I wanted them to answer honestly about something that they just, whatever they, I wanted to give them an opportunity to talk about whatever they wanted to talk about. Like, for example, Shane would probably want to talk about his horses. You know what it's like. Anyways. <laughs> so... <laughs> So the question is this. <laughs> what, <laughs> what question would you most want for me to ask you? Are you going to ask it after I say it? We'll see. <laughs> It'd be really good if I just went, cool. Anyway, so... <laughs> Wow, that good. <laughs> um, what are you frightened of? Why do you want to be asked that? Because I feel like so much of being a representative for communities or a, a visibility figure, when it's thrusted upon you, means that you create an archetype of being strong, perfect, unflawed. And I feel like what, l- what lacks in that conversation is that I'm also afraid, that I'm also flawed, that I'm also all these things. And I feel like uh, what's so lovely about this conversation 
is that that premise was never in. So I'm being so open. But most interviews are about, how are you inspiring? How are you doing this? Oh my God, you did this. And no one ever maybe processes that you're a human too. And I think one of the most human things that I think of is fear. So what are you frightened of? Wow. Um, I'm frightened of... I'm frightened of dying in the same way in the same society that I've lived in. So I'm frightened of getting to a point in society where I'm like older hopefully and die and look back and it's just the same thing that we're talking about. Um and I'm also frightened of desirability. You're frightened of desirability. As in, I'm frightened of the lack of desirability that may be placed onto my body. I think deep down, I still have an urge to be desired from lots of different types of people. And I'm frightened of uh, what happens when you're trans and gender non-conforming in public. Does that mean that you suddenly lose all the people that could have desired you if you weren't? This is so deep. I'm just like, <laughs> this is pride We Wait, hold on. No, I'm like... I'm kind of gagged. I'm kind of gagged because I just was not expecting it to... F I'm, whoa. <laughs> you, we, can take, we can talk about, like... No, no, I'm fine. Shane's horses But or I'm something. like, is, it, are, is everything always like this? Oh, it was very hard to get this reaction from Danny Wallace, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> but this <laughs> isn't weird that I'm being so open. I'm just quite no, an open person. No, okay, great. Then we can carry on. Perfect. Then we can carry on. My therapist would be so proud. Anyway. <laughs> um, this kind of links in with desirability. Do you connect desirability with perfection. You've mentioned perfection a lot of times in, in sentences throughout this chat. What's your, is that the same thing for you? Um, Do you think you need to be perfect to be desired? No, I think lots of people are desired that aren't perfect. I think that uh, although the human race is behind in so many ways that I'm still surprised by. I think we have processed that actually we can desire people that aren't perfect. Um, and I think that a lot of people desire people with their flaws. Um, so I don't think for me desirability is tied up to perfection as say. I think the uh, activist culture is tied up to perfection. I think current identity politics is tied up to this idea of perfection. I think current internet activism is tied up to perfection. Park it. But I think desirability is tied up to, to, for me, if I'm honest, desirability is tied up to gender. And it's about how we perform gender and who's doing it right. And for me, as someone that knows that the world is viewing me as doing gender wrong, that's wrapped into my desirability. And I, I, I think I preach a lot uh, in other interviews, if you've probably researched about uh, how fine I am with that, because I, I, I desire other gender non-conforming people and I find them attractive. I still think there's a deep part of me inside that wishes the world would also desire us. Not just as inspirational figures, not just as like our quotes for Pride Month, but also as like sexy people. Oh, so when you said desirability, you didn't mean you personally being desired by like a romantic partner or a sexual partner. No. You meant society in terms of... I meant society that's full of potential romantic partners. <laughs> I meant, yeah, I meant that I meant yeah. that since being trans out in public and being gender non-conforming right. in public, uh, the people that used to chat me up in a club will no longer chat me up. And I pretend that that doesn't bother me, but I think deep down the question was about fear is that like, wow, that, I think that maybe does bother me a bit. Mm. So when you, well, talk to me a tiny bit about therapy then. 
like <laughs> more than you already have insinuated. I'm just. Comp- Is therapy. it new? Have you oh, have you been in therapy? Been in therapy for like five months. Oh, it's still new. It's still new. He's great. He's have you still- cried yet? Yes. Oh, oh really? Have I cried? <laughs> So much. Um, yeah, I've cried loads in therapy. Oh my god, we have a cold war going on. Me and my therapist. You don't cry. She's her. like, she's like shoving the paper tissues over, and I'm like, mm, you are not getting me this time. <laughs> <laughs> nah, nah. She's like, and how did that feel? She did. She did the um, Goodwill Hunting thing. Oh really? It's not your fault. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, I know, it's not your fault. Don't even get me. <laughs> Don't you dare! If I cry, it's because of Robin Williams. <laughs> so, what what made you decide to go into therapy? Apart from natural common sense, I think. Right, everyone should I think be in I I was in a position when I was privileged enough to be able to afford it. That was the main thing. And two, I think we're all crazy. <laughs> we're all we're all crazy and trans. <laughs> like I I. I I, I, I wish that we lived in a world where everyone could get therapy. Oh, yeah. And I'm now in a position where I can be able to get it. So, like, yeah. why not? You know? And, I, and I'm lucky enough to be surrounded by people that therapy is pretty the norm. I think that says something about queer people and our mental health. But I realized when broaching into the wild world, which is the straight world, um, <laughs> that I would mention, I was like, yeah, so I was in therapy the other week and they would all tense up. You just mentioned you're in therapy. What's this? <laughs> And I remember that brown queer people like, I'm in therapy. They're like, oh, who is it? Do I know them? And it's... <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so, so, yeah, I think it was just the norm. I was like, uh, all these things are happening to me on the daily basis. It would be kind of a wild move not to get therapy. Yeah. Is it helping? Yes. Yes, yes. Um, it's making me more honest. I think if you yeah. had this conversation with me seven months ago, we'd have, be having a very different conversation. I think uh, therapy, is it helping? I think it's um, caused lots of things for me. It's making me be more honest with myself. So sometimes that's great and sometimes that's hard. But I think seven months ago, we'd be having a very different conversation without therapy. Is that beca- would that be uh, intentional? Yes, you would be getting a blue tick verified answer that my agent would uh, definitely approve of. <laughs> what are the, um, just in general, not just therapy-wise, but what's the, uh, what's the word, like upside or the positive or the, what's the, what are the good things about vulnerability and being honest? Mm. Um, I think it allows for deeper connections. Uh, with other people I think it it's hard because I feel like also it leaves you open for attack but then it also means that when I receive care I know that I'm receiving care based off of who I am and not what I was pretending to be right um I also think it wheedles out the weak links, right? The friends that are still around me after being like a vulnerable emotional mess throughout the right time means that like they're really here for me. And it means that I know that they're here for all of me. Um, And I think also being open and vulnerable has allowed other people around me to be open and vulnerable too. So it creates this chain reaction of people deciding that it's okay to talk, you know? Um, Yeah. I'm trying to phrase this. Um, how? Because you, I still want. I think I want to go back to perfection. Because mm-hmm. you have mentioned the word a few times. For you personally, what does perfection mean? Or the consequences of imperfection? I think. Um, wow. 
was one of the things you were trying to hide when you yeah. gave the, 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 the agent the answer. Yeah, I think for me, um, perfection has always been a way out. And now how perfection sits within my life is understanding that the very people that will cheer me on will be very quick to call me out as soon as I make a mistake. And I think for me, perfection is that I understand that in this world, people have to pretend that the people they admire are perfect in order for them to be people that we admire. Um, and I think I thought that perfection was the only way out. For a very long time, I was like, the only way I'm going to be able to survive is to be perfect. Um, the only way I'm going to be able to survive is to become the best at this. And I've always been quite obsessed with that until recently. I've always been, you know, I think there's a reason, you know, I'm really young. I'm really, really young. And there's a reason why I think I'm at this point in my career this young and people often celebrate that but I actually think what's happened is that like this was a young person that thought they had to really try hard in order for people to see them. Are you still scared of not trying hard enough? Yes. Yeah. Are you just going to accept that answer or you want more? <laughs> I'm not speaking until you uh, <laughs> This really is like therapy. Um, yeah, I think I'm... Partly, not as much. I think recently, but I think that also comes with privilege, actually. I think it's only recently where I've been so much more relaxed about what I put out into the world, but that comes with the privilege that I know I have my work schedule that can pay rent mm -hmm. for the next year. Yeah. When actually, when I was still struggling as an artist, I was very much still striving for perfection. And I think actually what I've learned from now being in a position, touch wood for a while, where I'm... I'm I'm okay and I can pay rent from this job is that I've allowed myself to be more messy. And I'm like, wow, look at how much growth I've done. But actually, maybe it's just privilege. Maybe it's actually that I know that if I say loads of shit to this audience now, it's not going to affect my job next week. Whereas maybe a year ago when I was invited, you know, two years ago when I performed at Soho Theatre for the first time, I was like, I need to impress all these people. I need to do this. I need to do that. I need to schmooze with the people out there. And now I'm like, oh, you're going to get what you get. Right? Yeah. And people read that as badass, but actually maybe it's just privilege. Yeah, I th well, I think it's a, it's a f I think our instinct is when someone says, oh, I need to be perfect, I need to be twice as good as everyone else, usually you'd want to say, no, of course not. But yeah, a lot of people actually have to be twice as good as everyone else uh, yeah, to I get half the work. Right, I wouldn't be where I was now without three years of overperforming. I, I, I did like, you know, 20 gigs a week at some point. I would go from club to club to club, uh, performing in bars where like no one would know who I was. And I would be like, I know I'm better than every single person in this lineup. I just need to prove it. And I would like scream and shout and overwork and do all these things that was unhealthy. But I knew that I needed to do it in order to now be at a place where I can take a holiday. Talk to me about precaution. I also... I, I can hear whenever you're sort of trying to start an applause, and I know I'm talking over you. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> we don't have time. <laughs> you're too great for this. Do you know what I want to ask, though? Oh, go on. Um, in my therapy session, I always tell my therapist to warn me when we're seven minutes till oh, the end. absolutely. Just because otherwise I feel emotionally open and then closing. That is and such a good trick. Yeah. I, tried, I just try to, to turn the clock, and then she turns it back around. No, I always ask. <laughs> and I'm always like... <laughs> And I didn't think this would feel like therapy, but it is starting to. So I need seven minutes to yeah. wind back into being... Uh, so that's my boundary. We're f f seven minutes from the last question. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've, I've, I'm learning so much. I know. This has gone oh, so I'm going to nail this, this therapy so session on Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> like, listen, bitch, right? What you do is... You <laughs> 
I know that's anyways. I know it's problematic. Anyways, um, talk about precautions that you have to take to survive. I take so many precautions. Um, what do you mean? In what sphere of my life? Um, existing in the world, I think, to self-protection, both psychologically yeah. and physically. So going out today, I've packed makeup wipes. I've packed a change of shoes and I've packed a change of outfits because if I'm walking back home at night like this, I'll probably get beaten up. Yeah, I think for, for me, precaution, you know, being trans and gender non-conforming means that I'm constantly thinking about precautions in order to stay alive. Um, yeah. And psychologically, is, the, is there a, is, does a change happen when you walk into the world with your makeup wiped off and another outfit? Yeah, I'm bored. <laughs> I, I, I feel... Um, I just don't feel me. I think when... Um, there's so many trans people that edit themselves before they go outside in order to survive. And I think what it does to us is it forces us to shrink. And my friends notice it. You know, when I'm feeling myself, I'm also then giving something to the room. And I hate that a lot of the time, unless I'm getting cabs to an event, you know, most of the time, the place I was at before, I made sure in the contract that they got me a cab here so that I didn't have to think about how I was going to go through the streets because then I would have to come here, do my makeup, get dressed up, and then it feels like a performance. But what the... Perf and, and people often say that... So people will come to my shows, they'll see me, and they'll see me an hour and a half after the show in trousers with no makeup, and then they'll say, what you were doing on stage was a performance. And I'll be like, why don't we think that actually what I'm doing now is the performance? Right? That actually, that actually on stage is the one place that I'm celebrated for the things that I'm punished for outside. Hmm. What, in everyday life, what's the thing that you would want people to know? That you want to scream at people for not knowing? Um, I would want a scream. Like, that we're not new. I feel like sometimes the harassment that comes to gender non-conforming people and the fear is based off of a fear and desire. And I mean that very much together because I think that fear and desire are not far apart. I think often the people that fear me also desire me. What I mean by that is that often the people that fear me want to be me. <laughs> I think that most of the men that harass me also are trans. Um, and I, I, I say this with literally no, no thinking. I think it's genuinely true. I think most of the people that harass me are harassing me because they see something in themselves that they wanted to be and now they can't be. And I guess what I want people to see when they see me on the street is that I'm not new. You don't have to take photos. You don't have to stop and make a parade out of this. That actually 2,000 years ago you can go into the archives and see someone that looked exactly like me with probably two earrings in rather than one. And they will be much more interesting. Uh, I think I want people to know that I'm not, we're not new. That I'm not this new phase. That I that that that, that, that non-binary, that trans, all of this, it it's existed for thousands of years. That actually it was the most natural thing for people that looked like me to do. Pre-colonization, everyone in the countries that I was from accepted and praised gender non-conforming people. When we look into South Asia and, and Hijra communities, they existed pre-colonization and were worshipped and seen as a class. English people came in and inflicted rules. And now suddenly we're the new, we're the norm, we're the disruptive. But what I want to change around and swing to that is actually, what if we were the original? 
<laughs> Actually, what if we were the things that always... Yeah, you can clap for that, Ish. What if we were the things that always existed and actually it's you that is the new imposed rule? That's what I'd say. Normally I just say, fuck off, stop taking photos of me. <laughs> before, the, before, the, yeah, before the final question, because um, I think you're right, that the thing about the people who are harassing you, the desirability, the desire and the, the fear, um, does that make you emphasize? Yes. With them? In yeah. the moment? Not in the moment, no. afterwards. In the moment, I'm like, how do I stay safe? In the moment, yeah. I'm like, fuck you for ruining my day. In the moment, I'm like, what can I do right now to try and have power? But in my shows, what I think people are often surprised about is that I, I, I'm not one of these people that are like, fuck straight people, fuck cis people. I, I do that in a joke, but actually, because I don't genuinely believe that they're straight because I don't genuinely believe that they're cis, I'm actually like, I feel sorry for you. I feel sorry that you haven't accessed a world that allows you to breathe lighter. Um, I do empathize with them, but that doesn't mean that I can't also simultaneously feel pissed off at them. Uh, you know, there's lots of things I don't understand. I don't shout at them when I don't understand them. I think that uh, straight people and straight cis people, predominantly straight cis men, have gotten away for hundreds of years of being able to respond to their confusion with anger. And I'm just like, every other marginalized body, feminine people, women, trans people, people of color, have learned how to deal with that confusion in other ways. Who's going to put them in a fucking university lesson and teach them to be a bit better? You know, so I, I, I empathize them with with them for a bit and then I'm like you know what we all are dealing with confusion every day we all deal with disappointment we all deal with rejection it's only straight cis white men that respond to that with violence <laughs> so I'm just like you know I, I kind of want to want to stop giving them that rope you know I'm kind of like stop you know you know the other day someone harassed me on the tube and I turned around to them and I said didn't you match me on tinder <laughs> And it was true. It was true. The very same person that called me faggot had matched me on Tinder two days prior. And I was like, girl, I recognize you. And instead of saying, I'm afraid of the fact that I find you desirable, I'm afraid of the fact that I think I want to be you, I'm going to say, be lazy and call you a faggot. When they're saying faggot, they actually just want to say that I miss you. You know, you're, you're uh, so amazing. Uh, so the last question that I always ask... Um, Was this out to the Backstreet Boys too? Westlife, Westlife. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Fuck. Let me out. I'm out. I'm gone. I'm gone. <laughs> <laughs> Delete the file. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. <clears throat> I believe we're all Westlife. Um, if you self-ID as Westlife, you are Westlife. I'm more Brian, I think, but let's not get into it. Um, <laughs> I did not ask this question, but I wish I had. Um, <laughs> one day, one day. <laughs> so, um, use your imagination, okay? You're in the delivery room, and you have just been born. And you now are holding teeny tiny baby you and Tanya Travis is crying and screaming because they're scared there's lights and sounds everywhere they were just in the womb and that was safe and nice and now it seems like everything is terrifying mm -hmm. 
And you know that the next, however old you are, that up until this point now, you need to start with this atheism. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, at least up until this point, what the baby is going to experience. And you know there will be a lot of light and sound. It won't be lights and sound, it'll be other things, uh, harassment, dehumanization, horrible things. But you can say something to the baby to make it feel a bit less scared, if that is what you want. You can't change the future at all. But you can say something to teeny tiny baby you, what would you say? I mean, I'll talk like a tiny second. Yeah, thank you. This is deep, right? This is deeper. I would say that I want you to remember that the very things they're going to punish you for are the very things that are making this world worth living. Do you still need to be told that? I believe it. I just want to tell other people that as well. That the very things that you're telling us are wrong with me is the very things that have created culture, is the very things that have created your music, is the very things that have created your language, Yas, Queen, Hunty, all of this. All the things that they're going to tell you are wrong with you are the very things that are right. And I think I would say that it's not you that is broken, it is more the world. Where can people find your work? Um, I'm very easily identifiable online. <laughs> you can just Google Travis Alabanza and I'm sure you'll find something. <laughs> Do you want to pack the Copenhagen thing? Oh, yeah. I have quite a few listeners in Copenhagen. Hello, Copenhagen listeners. Do you want me to translate I'll... into Danish? <laughs> Hi, Copenhagen, Luda. I will be in Gender House Festival on the last weekend of September. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> And for people here, my new theatre show comes out at... Am I allowed to do a plug? Oh, Great. Do. My new theatre show, Burgers, comes out at Hackney Showroom at the end of October this year. So please come along. Uh, usually, um, before I kind of leave the stage, I will first say, give it up for, and then you applaud, and then I'll start speaking. But I have this tiny feeling that maybe once I ask you to give it up for, then you're going to lose your mind for a few five minutes or so. So I'll, uh, before that happens, that'll be the last thing I do, uh, because Travis, you've been amazing. Not yet. Um, <laughs> you've, you've been... No? <laughs> Uh, you've been like a dream of an audience and I'm so grateful that you've come um, when you do applaud, wait uh, <laughs> also include in the applause uh, a thank you to the Soho Theatre for having us and uh, you can uh, listen to this podcast It'll, this podcast will be out within the next two months at some point and uh, so you've been great and now as the last thing uh, have a good evening and all of that but <laughs> please help me in thanking the amazing Travis Alabanza. Thank you so much for listening. By now, surely you agree with me that Travis is extraordinary. Travis, if you're listening, thank you, thank you, thank you for doing this. I love you so, so much. Uh, for you, for those of you listening who are not Travis Alabanza, uh, go and uh, tweet them. Thank them for, for doing this. Uh, as you, I know you tend to do with most of the guests on here. It's, um, it's one of my favorite things that you, my listeners, do is you get in touch with the people 
who were guests and you tell them that that it meant something to you that they did this so go and do that with Travis as well that would be incredible uh, if you want to support the podcast in other ways you can and also I um, what's it called suggested no no that's uh, recommended commended I don't know it's my second language I don't know um, anyways I wouldn't be able to do this podcast if it wasn't for the help of you people it's so uh, I'm so grateful to have you I get uh, sometimes I get little one-off donations via PayPal which you can do on madeofhumanpodcast.com which is so nice and it means the world I'll be standing somewhere being like oh shit how do I pay my rent or like like now right now I am I lost my thingy like the thing that uh, you can plug into my your computer and then you get a USB thing which I desperately need to record this intro and to transfer the podcasts over onto the computer. I don't know what it's called, adapter of some sort. And I just, I just I couldn't find it. It was gone. I think I've left it in a cafe somewhere. So I immediately had to buy one. And stuff like that is what you're, what you're helping me with. Otherwise, I just there just wouldn't be an episode for a while. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so that's what you're doing, and I am so, 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 so grateful. Uh, another thing you can do, which is my favorite thing, is patreon.com. You can become a patron. So p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash mopod, M-O-H-P-O-D. You can decide what uh, amount of dollars you want to give per episode. You type it in, you become a patron, and everything happens automatically. You won't even notice that it's disappearing from your account. You'll just in the back of your heart and your mind you'll know that you're helping this podcast exist which I mean I'm going to make a I think in this episode we've made a very strong case for how this podcast has sometimes brought some very important people's voices into your ears and uh, if you think that's worth anything Patreon is the way for you to, to tap, tap your fingers right now uh, if you give more than $5 per episode I will mention your name at the end of uh, of the of the podcast, which means that I will remember your name forever and ever because I will have said it so many times. I will have mispronounced it. I will have butchered it, but I will have said it out loud. So the people who are friends of the podcast who will get uh, the most of my gratitude and my love are these incredible people. I want to thank Kathy Draxelbauer, Robert Knowles, Eve Wingrith, Phil Vepolis, Katrina Ingelson, Rachel Furley, Zoe Cumberland, Helen Bowie, Marbles Laws, Rachel Phillips, Morak Fraser, Josephine Larson, Rachel Ayers, Nina Collingwood, Mia Rainey, Claire McCowlin, Paul Swaddle, Sarah Allard, Ronya Ronya, Robert Lee Can, Kat Posse, Ragdoll, Queen C, Jessica, Sheena, Moshette, Cole, Janie, Jane, Jane Mahoney, Mansour Mia, Hannah Keel, Helena Thomas, Josie, Perpetua Motion, nice, Harry Minnett, Susan Fjeldsun, Rachel Hemsley, Mari Fraser, Lucy, Susie Tyler, Kirsten Davison, Purdy Patterson, Steph Reen, Ruth Harvey, Katie Hatfield, Robin Kapper, Karen Threthaway, Russell Hughes, Ida Sugo Larson, Inga Ellingson, Emma Chen, Emma Walton, Andy Walker, Claire, Danny Beckett, Fiona Richardson, Kat Piller, Harry Van Dyke, Eleanor, Sarah Ferrer, and Daniel Reifersheed. Whew, we made it again. <laughs> Thank you to all of you. Now, uh, if you've just recently become a patron and I didn't mention your name, don't worry. It's because I sometimes record these intros uh, and, and outros ahead of time. Um, because, for example, now I'm about to go to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and I don't trust that I'll have time to 
record these. So don't worry, you will be mentioned eventually. Just give it some time. Uh, I want to thank Sarah Garvey for producing this episode, Bailey Leonard for writing and recording the jingle, to Linda Brinkhouse for the logo, to Soho Theatre for having us do these live episodes, and to the Phoenix Artists Club and Peter Dunbar for letting me record episodes there. I will speak to you next week. Bye. Bye.